This is Solve It for Kids. Hello, my amazing and curious friends. My name is Jennifer, the Dean of All Things STEM and STEAM, and this is Solve It for Kids. The podcast that gives kids and families a peek inside the real world of scientists, engineers, and experts as they solve problems in their jobs using creativity, cooperation, and critical thinking. And now, please welcome to the show my podcast partner, Galactic Space Geek, Jeff Ganya. Hello, Jennifer, and hello, listeners. Jennifer and Jeff are still out on their summer break. But we have a best of episode for you today that is going to have animal lovers going crazy. Exactly. So what problem are we solving today? The best of studying animals. The best of studying animals. Ooh, this yes. is going to be intriguing. Yes. So we are going to have clips from episode 146, What Does a Primatologist Do? with Dr. Maria Mayor. Episode 139 with Doug Weschler, Why Would You Want to Follow a Column of Army Ants? <laughs> I can't wait. I, I still have listened to that, right? And I still don't know the answer to that. And then episode 110, How Do You Recognize Every Giraffe in the World? With Dr. Monica Bond. We hope you enjoy the clips. What does a primatologist do? What does a primatologist do? This is going to be a fantastic discussion. Who is our guest today, Jeff? Our guest today is the terrific Dr. Maria Mayor. She is the Director of Exploration and Science Communication for Florida International University. She is also a National Geographic Explorer. Welcome to the show, Dr. Maria. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) We are excited to have you and we have so much to talk about. I mean, you discovered a whole new species, which is so awesome. But I like to start from the beginning. Were you always a kid who liked to be outdoors? And did you always like primates? (laughs) So I'm kind of a weird one. Ah, okay. Okay. Good start. (laughs) I loved being outdoors. I was pretty much a street kid (laughs) from the time that I could pretty much, you know, get out there on my own. But I grew up in a big city. I grew up in Miami, Florida, uh, an area called Little Havana, where there were a lot of Cuban immigrants. And my mom, who is herself a Cuban immigrant, was super overprotective. So I remember asking her if I could join the Girl Scouts. And she said, no way. That's far too dangerous. Right. Girl Scouts. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Can you believe it? So talk about being sheltered that way. So I didn't grow up, you know, camping and hiking and doing all the things that I probably would have really loved to do. But 
funny enough, kind of like my friend, Dr. Jane Goodall, which a lot of your listeners probably have heard of. That's um, a pretty prestigious friend there. Right? Yes. <laughs> uh, yes, she is. Wow. You know, I, I like to keep her name in my back pocket, but no, what I love is that she also spent a lot of time up in a tree in her backyard. And that was me oh. as a kid. I had a mango tree and I'd sit up there and I'd watch the birds and I'd catch lizards and always release them. But you know, I really <laughs> just loved being out in nature. That's awesome. Okay. That's been, so, yeah. so as you were growing up, did you also gravitate towards science classes in say middle school and high school, or was it more just a personal interest and not so much school? So I didn't view nature really connected to science. And the ah, other thing that okay. I didn't view was me myself as this overprotected, you know, total, <laughs> total girly girl as a scientist, because there weren't a lot of women scientists yes. in my textbooks and there yes. weren't a lot of female science teachers. And so I'll be honest with you. I was, I loved English. I loved art. I okay. was interested in theater. All of these things that obviously, like I thought at the time, had nothing to do with science. What's interesting is when I got to college, I had to take a science requirement. Right. And okay. I ended up choosing anthropology simply because it fit my uh, schedule. No other reason. <laughs> wow. It just fit my schedule. Fit the schedule. And it was there that I discovered that my love of the outdoors and adventure and exploration, plus my love of animals, because I really was obsessed. I was an animal obsessed kid. I had lots of pets, dogs, cats, birds, fish, and a pet chicken named Margarita. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. But it was in that class that I saw people like Jane Goodall. I saw people like Diane Fossey and Baruti Galdikas. And I suddenly had this, we'll call it an aha moment, where I realized that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. That's fantastic. That's That's amazing. Yes. With a class that just fit into your schedule. Right. That's unbelievable. But what's amazing is, is that that background, you know, the other passions I had, like, you know, English and literature. So I had strong writing skills. I was was actually a pre-law student. So, you know, good way to set up arguments. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I'm also, you know, daughter of a Cuban mom. So definitely know how to argue. There you (laughs) go. (laughs) But I didn't know then, which is, of course, what I know now, is that those skills would come in really handy because as a scientist, writing is a huge component. You have to write scientific grants and you have to sort of argue the position that what you're applying to do is a very important and worthwhile research that needs to be funded. And so all of these interests that I had leading up to that moment where I discovered science was my path. Wow. It all came together. That's fantastic. You know, cause we've talked about it on the show before too. So I was in Girl Scouts and I did all those camping Lucky and all that you. kind of stuff. I know. Right. <laughs> but I don't now go out and camp like you do. So now I'm, you know, my, my campground is the nearest hotel kind of thing. So you don't, you don't <laughs> hang a tent 14,000 up of feet up. You know, I, I, I do clip. not. No, I do not. <laughs> that is not yeah. on my to-do list. I, <laughs> I heavily admire people that do that. But what I like is that you can find science and that's kind of what we talk about on the show. You can find science kind of 
later in life, so to speak. Mm -hmm. You don't have to come to it. But now I want to know how you transitioned from that into primates. How did you, did you, is that your main focus or you just kind of stumbled into it? So my transition is kind of even bigger than that because while I was in college, I was also an NFL cheerleader for the Miami Dolphins. How cool. And so talk about really making a leap into the sciences (laughs) because you bring up a really good point. You can find science or science can find you basically at any point in life. And I think it was really intimidating thinking, oh, but all these other people have been doing, you know, really focused on science like their whole lives. And I always tell, especially young girls who think, oh, but I'm a dancer or I'm an artist or, you know, don't ever put yourself in a box that you don't have to be pigeonholed. You can have all these interests and talents and all of these other things, and you can still be a scientist. Why would you want to follow a colony of army ants? Why would you want to follow a colony of army ants? I have no idea. Well, I don't either. But we have an amazing guest today who's going to tell us all about it and who has actually done that. Please welcome to the show, Doug Weschler. He is a biologist and a children's author. Welcome to the show, Doug. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Jen. It's great to be here. We are excited to have you. So, army ants. I mean, wow. I guess my first question is, is how did you get into studying army ants? That seems really cool. Well, it started a long time ago. Um, <laughs> when I was in college, my professor had been studying army ants and especially the birds that follow army ants. He had been studying those for decades. And he took five of us down to Panama and... We helped him finish off his, his 10 year study of the birds that follow army ants on this island in Panama. Wow. And that's where I got my start a long now, time ago. I'm, and I'm, I'm not sure, but I was down in Panama a couple of years ago with my beautiful wife and we're in the rainforest and we're up above in the canopy and we looked down and we saw Something I never seen before, but we saw this 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 column of ants carrying all sorts of things, and from where we were, they looked gigantic, and the things they were carrying looked gigantic. Do you think those were army ants? No, those were leaf cutter ants. And okay. The leaf cutter ants are. It's it's almost like they're they're not um, they're neighbors of the army ants. And it's interesting because the army ants kill all sorts of other ants, but the army ants and the leafcutter ants have sort of a truce. And <laughs> when they get together, sometimes they'll skirmish a little bit. But even though each colony has hundreds of thousands or more members in it, they don't get into wars. Wow. Okay. So how, like, can you give us an idea? How big are these ants? So Okay. You know- Imagine, like, like, get kids to imagine what in their head, what it looks, right. they look like. So the army ants I'm talking about are one particular kind of army ant. There are about 150 kinds of army ants in the new world. And the, um, the one that's most people know about is the one that raids in, in these huge swarms above, uh, on, on these ground. So that ant has 
It doesn't have its own common name. It's called Esitin burchellii. Anyhow, the ants are, the small ones are three millimeters long, which is, oh, um, about the size of a, a little bit smaller than a grain of rice. Oh, wow. And the big ones are half an inch long, 13 millimeters. And the queen is about an inch or so long. And so um, you're saying like hundreds of thousands of these kind of march along or swarm together or whatever? The typical colony is about 300,000 to 700,000 ants. Oh, my gosh. And they don't have, they don't build a nest. They have a cluster. They form a cluster inside a hollow log or, or some other shelter. So it's just a big ball of ants. It's not round. It's shape-shifting. Um, but the whole colony is inside this cluster of ants called a bivouac. And so the bivouac is their home. And they move every night for two weeks. And then for three weeks, they hold, they, um, they go into a hollow tree and stay there. But every day they go out and raid and feed. So these raids... Um, if you're at the, the front of a raid, imagine you take a school bus, in, uh, an invisible, uh, yeah, invisible school bus into the forest, and you draw a line around the edge of the school bus. So it's about 40 feet long and oh, eight feet wide or whatever. And you throw up, <clears throat> take 30 cups, 30 cereal bowls of rice and throw it up in the air, and they land on the ground and scatter around in that school bus area, that's what the colony would look like when it's feeding, when it's raiding out in the forest. Oh, my God. There are <laughs> maybe up to 300,000 ants on the ground um, searching for other insects and small arthropods. Wow. That's so, – it. it's terrifying. When you <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it sounds terrifying, but this is the, the cool part, and I – I brought my wife out into the forest one day in Peru and there was, we, we found a colony of army ants and we're standing in front of it. They're, they're coming towards us. And I told her, don't worry, just hold still. No. Just hold still and you'll be fine. So we're wearing rubber boots and we hold still. The colony comes and they come right up past to us. They, they climb a couple inches up our boot. But they don't climb any farther because we're holding still. And so if you know what you're doing, you can stay pretty safe from the army ants. I would not do that. Would you hold still, Jed? They'll crawl up your legs. I would would try, but I don't think I'd be able to. Um, I guess that's that's the next question. Are, 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 Are army ants dangerous to humans? Not normally. It's possible that somebody could be allergic to their stings. How can you recognize every giraffe in the world? How do you recognize every giraffe in the world? Oh, I want to know the answer to this. Who is our guest today, Jeff? So if you want to know the answer to a question as big as that, you can imagine our guest is somebody that's been doing a lot of work. Listen to this. Dr. Monica Bond is a wildlife biologist and biodiversity activist. 
and she works as principal scientist for the Wild Nature Institute as well as being a research associate for the University of Zurich. How cool! Welcome to the show, Dr. Monica. Well, thank you very much. And hello, Jennifer. Hello, Jeff. And hello to everybody out there listening. I am so excited. And I know we say that all the time, but I love giraffes. We're going to talk all about giraffes. So I'd like to start kind of at the beginning. Like, have giraffes always been your favorite animal since you were a kid? Well, I do have to say that I wouldn't say giraffes are my favorite. I absolutely love them and adore them. And they are definitely one of the best animals out there in the savannah. But <laughs> I actually really love everything. I love all of wild nature from the, you know, the okay. termites to the, you know, the, the small things all the way up to the big giraffes. And I'm a wildlife biologist and I've actually done research on lots of different kinds of animals. Oh. I, I got my master's degree studying voles, which are like, they're related to lemmings. They're like little mice. Oh, yeah. And then I studied owls. And ooh, now ooh, owls I'm studying cool. giraffe. Yeah, owls are pretty cool. And now, like, I graduated on to kind of bigger things. <laughs> so, yeah, I've studied from the small to the big. And, you know, every crater has its place in the ecosystem. Yes. And they're all important. And they're all really super cool. But I do have to say, when I tell people I studied giraffes, it gets people pretty excited in a way that when I said I studied voles, it didn't really. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was like, voles. I got to remember what those are. I can't wait yeah. to go to the zoo to see all the voles. <laughs> but oh, voles, are, voles are so important. In the yes. They like aerate the soil and their food for lots of things and everything. But giraffes also <laughs> play a key role in their ecosystem. So yeah, everything's important. And I, But I did the first time I went to Africa in 2005. I really did love the giraffes. I was mesmerized oh, by them. And, and yeah. so I'm, I feel really lucky that I was able to, for the last 10 years, I've been studying giraffes in Tanzania and East Africa. Wow. And I, I just feel awesome. like I'm living the dream every day when I'm out there and seeing them. And they're, they're really quite magnificent. They are. That's wonderful. Yeah. So I want to go back to one of the things you said about when you were studying, you got your degree in wildlife biology. Mm -hmm. That's wildlife like you said, everything down to the little bitty, all the way up to the ginormous. How do you end a degree? How can you finish <laughs> a degree in wildlife biology by studying so many things? Yeah, that's a really good question. So really, it's not necessarily about the animal in particular. It's, okay. About, okay. it's about the tool. So when I go, you know, I got my master's degree and I got a PhD. And what I learned there were the tools on how to study wildlife from the small to the big. Okay. So I learned right. things like I learned statistics. So how do I, I learned how to collect data and then how to right. process okay. the data. What do I do with the data? You know, we go out and we count things or we identify things or we measure trees and things like this. And then what do you do with that? How do you right. learn things from it? How do you answer right. questions from it? So what you really learn in, in graduate school is that, in, in, you know, in college all the way through your PhD is the tools that you need to answer key questions. And those can be used from, you know, voles all the way to giraffes to answer questions of all sorts of types. So when you look at the animals for the wildlife biology, are you looking at them in particular environments and their effect on the environments and the ecosystems and all that kind of stuff? Absolutely. I, I think we can say we look at how they affect each other. So oh. the relationships between okay. individuals of the, the species right. and then definitely how they affect the environment and how the environment affects them. 
Oh, which is probably really important these days, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Because we have, as we say, it's a rapidly changing world. And that poses a lot of difficulties and challenges for wildlife. So part of what we do is try to learn what's causing these problems for them and then how we can help these animals survive in a rapidly changing world. Okay. So you said for the last 10 years, you've been studying giraffes. I take that to mean you've learned a whole lot about them by now. (laughs) So, and you already have a decade's worth of your own personal information. What can you tell us about the giraffe's place in the ecosystem. Okay, so let's start by saying, first, I stand on the shoulders of giants, and I don't mean giant <laughs> giraffes, but I mean <laughs> gi- giant scientists, people yes. who have okay. research on giraffes. The first person to go formally study giraffes in the wild was a woman named Anne Innes Dagg, and she oh. went in the late 1950s. She went to South Africa and was the first person to really methodically record data about giraffes. So there's a wow. movie about her. They, they made a movie about her called The Woman Who Loves Giraffes. And okay. she's Canadian. And so she was, she was really young, fresh out of college, and she really loved giraffes and really wanted to study them. But back in the 50s, it wasn't so common for women to do no. this. And All so right. she was writing to people in Africa saying, I would like to come over there and do some field research. And she would sign her letters and DAG, and they, she would inevitably get a response back saying, sorry, you know, you're a woman. We can't allow that. So she, <laughs> right. she wrote letters and then signed her name A-DAG. So they didn't know her name was Anne. Uh, so um, somebody responded and said, sure, come on over and come study our giraffes at our reserve in South Africa. And right before she left, she wrote and said, well, I'm actually a woman. And he said, oh, whoa, whoa, you can't come. But she went <laughs> anyway, she went Yay! anyway. She up. And it was the beginning of a lifelong friendship. She did great, really important work. She wrote books about giraffes. And to this day, I cite her papers in her research and in my research, you know, this is many, many decades later. So I stand on the shoulders of those giants of people who've been studying giraffes before me. That is a lot of fun episodes. And I (laughs) have summer plans that involve some sort of a zoo, an aquarium, something that involves animals. So hopefully you listen to these full episodes and then want to learn more about these animals in the episodes as well as the ones you experienced this summer. Absolutely. And so where can you find the rest of the episodes? Why? On our website, solveitforkids.com. And if you like the episodes or you want to share with us a cool animal that you got to meet or saw over the summer, don't forget to tag us on our social media. We are at KidSolve at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Until next time, Jen and Jeff are still on summer break from (laughs) Solve Solve It for for Kids. Kids.